ultimately, my beef with the response to these attacks is is not that we didn't respond to NotPetya, because I think we did. There were sanctions yeah. that came a month mm-hmm. later. I don't know how strong they really were. But it was that it took it took NotPetya for us to actually respond. It took years of watching Russia do things that are the quintessential acts of cyber war that we should have been calling red lines and getting away with it for years and just getting bigger and bigger in their ambitions. And then finally, you know, unleashing NotPetya for us to say anything about it. And then, you know, six six days before the Five Eyes put out that statement about NotPetya, this Olympic destroyer attack happened. And we still have not talked about that publicly. So there's a kind of failure of, of diplomacy happening here. And the failure of government, right? Welcome to episode 286 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, or maybe it's 285 and a half. This is going to be a freestanding interview uh, uh, with Andy Greenberg, uh, uh, who's an award-winning senior writer at Wired, uh, who covers cybersecurity, and who's written a book, uh, Sandworm, A New Era of Cyber War and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers, uh, just released today uh, or tomorrow, tomorrow. depending on when this actually comes out. Uh, And uh, we're doing this interview freestanding. We didn't do an interview in our last uh, uh, version of the uh, podcast, um, but I thought it was important to get it out quickly rather than tack it to the next uh, uh, episode. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, host of today's program. Uh, uh, I'm at least a lawyer talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and I guarantee you that uh, the views I express and probably the views that Andy expresses are not those of our institution's our friends, our acquaintances, our lovers, or uh, our pets, uh, uh, or our clients. Um, uh, So, uh, Andy, I want to jump right in and ask you about this book, which I really enjoyed. And I got to say, I I got... Uh, I enjoyed it more as it went on. Inevitably, with these books, you spend a lot of time telling the world and the ordinary interested observer stuff that everybody who is close to the field already knows. Uh, So this book really gets rolling about a third of the way through. And I started to learn more and more. And it just, it comes to a very nice crescendo toward the end. We'll talk about it. But here's my question. How'd you come to write it? Well, in late 2016, my editors at Wired, where I have written about hackers and surveillance and all this stuff for a little over five years now, they asked me to to find the big story of cyber war, and I didn't really know if I believed that cyber war was real, was an actual phenomenon at the time. I think that what they actually meant was the election hacking, the Russian right. election meddling, which I did not consider to be cyber war. But I went looking for what I thought was, you know, maybe you know, where was there a cyber war if there was one? And I had read a little bit about Ukraine, um, where you know there had there was this kind of hybrid war that had been unfolding since the pro-Western revolution. Right. And the more I read, the, the kind of more I could see was going on. There there were- There was clearly a war already, and then there was a big cyber element to it as Absolutely. well. And it was this sustained series of attacks, cyber attacks, hitting every part of Ukrainian society, the media, the private industry, the government, and then utilities with this first ever blackout in twenty late 2015. And as I was reading about this, it happened again in late 2016. So I, I felt like this I was not too late to this story. I could get into it and it was still escalating and unfolding. And so I, you know, I, I my first uh, dip into this was a, a big magazine feature for Wired 
about the cyber war in Ukraine and how we could see what was happening there was that Russia was using Ukraine as a test lab for new cyber warfare techniques. Yeah, sort of, sort of like uh, Spain in the uh, uh, lead up to World War II when uh, both the communists and the Nazis tested their weapons and yeah. their tactics. And uh, Peter Singer was very upset that I did not include that analogy that he gave to me in the book, which I should have. It's a, it's a very good one. I used to give talks about cyber war, and I used as my introduction the Guernica picture, which was a piece of war propaganda about the use of uh, bombers against civilian populations. Uh, so the, the, the fear of new technology being used in war goes back at least to the 30s. Yeah, it is a, a really apt analogy. And, and the story that I wrote back in 2017 was that you know, we need to pay attention to what's happening in Ukraine because sooner or later, these techniques, like these capabilities that Russia is using will spill out to the rest of the world, that U Ukraine is a canary in the coal mine, and we should pay attention to what's happening there for our own self-interest. So the, the second attack teaches us a little bit more about where cyber war was three years ago than the first attack. The first attack, they just sort of took over the screens and started moving uh, 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 the mouse around. The second attack was much more sophisticated and thoughtful. Well, the first attack was pretty impressive, too. I don't want to like, – I think I agree with you. They didn't – in the first attack, they didn't actually have a piece of malware that turned out the lights, unlike Stuxnet, which you know was a, a beautifully coded piece of malware that itself destroyed right. centrifuges. I mean, that's amazing. This uh, – in, in that first 2015 blackout attack, uh, it was essentially just manual – it gave them manual access and then they clicked through. They were this, super users, basically. Right. I mean, they were, they were the IT administrators logging in to take over your desktop. And they did that to, you know, grid operators instead. But in, yeah, in 2016, as you're getting at, they, they did use an automated piece of malware called Crash Override or InDestroyer that was the, a kind of I, – I don't want to say Stuxnet-like thing because Stuxnet was so sophisticated. But it was an automated – you know, malware attack that that just rapid fire opened every circuit breaker. And actually, there's more to it than than I managed to get into the book. There's news about this malware uh -huh. that just came out in the last couple of months that I've written for about for Wired. Dragos, uh, this industrial control system focused cybersecurity firm. This is Rob Lee's Rob Lee's firm, yeah. and, and this this analyst there, Joe Slowick, did this. He kind of re reconstructed a new order of operations of that attack. And found, I do mention this this vaguely in the book, that there was this little element of that attack that, that tried to put to sleep protective relays, these little right. safety devices in a transmission station or other you know, part of a grid uh, that monitors for an overload of current and you know, tries to prevent uh, burnt lines and exploding transformers. We didn't know what that protective relay attack was about at the time. It turns out that what the hackers seemed to have been trying to do was to use this automated uh, circuit breaker opening to turn off all the power and then trick the operators into scrambling. Um, and turning everything on sure. with the malware ru running. With the protective relays put to sleep so that they <gasps> oh, would Oh, so they would just fry all this. Uh, they would fry circuits. their own equipment. And, and the response would be the, the kind of killer moment when they may, might blow up trans, a transformer and cause a blackout that was much worse than anything we'd ever, we'd ever seen before. Yeah. I, I, I once, um, I, 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 when I heard that story, I, uh, in an earlier episode, I said something like, you know, the, the Russians are famous for their illegal biological weapons program that they ran for 40 years. And part of that 
program was to design a, wet, a, a bug that first gave you the flu and then when you treated the flu, it turned into smallpox uh, and everybody died. And was, the, the, the idea was to force people to uh, create their own doom. Uh, wow. You are really full of good analogies today because that is, uh, that is so perfect. And it's, but it, it, is so, it is exactly that insidious. It's this idea of using the, the response against the victim. And the Ukrainians were lucky that that element that's didn't work. <laughs> it was just a tiny misconfiguration of the attack that to make it made it. And fail. there's that's the story of a lot of the the worst stuff we've seen is that there there have been some things that uh, change the expected out uh, action of the uh, malware uh, sometimes in good ways and sometimes in bad. But uh, coding errors are not uncommon in cyber war. Right. And that maybe is a good introduction to the to the third big attack in this series, which came out after that first Wired piece and was is the reason that this book exists. Because this is, you know, the, the, the story was not just about um, Ukraine being a canary in the coal mine. It's about how the cyber war in Ukraine spilled out to the rest of the world due to, as you know, you're, you were getting at uh, another mistake, I think, this, the release of NotPetya, which right. was you know, uh, released in Ukraine, but immediately spread to the rest of the world, probably as collateral damage, but became the worst cyber attack in history, caused at least $10 billion of damage. And to me is like the kind of uh, climax of this and that series was the, of the, attacks the, in Ukraine. Yeah, That caused harm to anybody who essentially paid taxes in the Ukraine. Because to, to pay taxes in the Ukraine, you had to have this obscure piece of software, which was poorly secured and which could be updated by uh, the Russians uh, in a way that caused everybody's systems to fail. Um, a, and so that raises this question. Was it inadvertent that they harmed everybody who paid taxes to Ukraine or did they think uh, either, yeah, that's what we want to do or screw them if they can't take a joke? Well, I've gone back and forth about this, and I hear different things from different people who have studied NotPetya, this this terrible worm. I ultimately do think that it was largely collateral damage, but that's uh, to say that is almost to let them off the hook in a way, because right. it was it was so reckless that these hackers, Sandworm, who released NotPetya, could have, as you say, they they took over the the this accounting software called MeDoc. Um, they they hijacked the updates and used that to seed out. The, their worm to all these mm -hmm. networks in Ukraine, and which you know means essentially spreading it to everyone who does business in Ukraine, which included you know this long list of multinational companies, each of which suffered hundreds of millions of dollars each. So that is you know how this became such a disaster. But because they used this accounting software, they also had the ability, uh, if they had wanted to, to access the tax ID number of every one of the victims. Right. And that was that was something that some of the malware analysts I spoke to pointed out that they could have easily identified exactly oh, who and, each and victim said, was. Oh, and said, you know, not him. Just not the Ukrainians. Like, right. let's, let's just, you know, um, focus this attack on exactly the blast radius inside of Ukraine's borders. And that, you know, that wouldn't have been perfect. <laughs> you know what that sounds but, like? That, sound, <laughs> that sounds like a lawyer for cyber command who uh, probably asks people exactly that question when they're getting ready to launch their own uh, cyber attacks. I mean, I don't know if that would have been good enough for cyber command even then. No. It seems like the U.S. honestly is pretty restrained about these kinds of disruptive attacks. And these, you know, when you release a worm, you never really know where it's going to stop spreading. And it probably would have spread beyond Ukraine anyway. But they could have nonetheless 
you know, tried to keep it out of the networks of Maersk and Merck and FedEx and like Mondelez and Rankin Benkistler, these massive companies that really were not their targets. And also, let's be clear, there there were tons of Russian victims of NotPetya as well. Right. And I name a few in the book, but I, you know, uh, Russians point this out to me that how could this have been a Russian military intelligence attack when uh, we suffered well, so boy, much from it? Maybe more military than intelligence, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I think that the answer is that it was probably an accident. And these guys are just cowboys. They just made a terrible mistake. So that's uh, looking at what's being done in Ukraine by the Russians. Clearly, uh, there's a lot of cowboying going on, partly because, uh, you know, Ukraine is cl not clearly uh, a country that we're sworn to defend. We're happy to help them, but we're not sworn to defend them under NATO. And uh, if we did swear to defend them, uh, the Russians might make us prove it. So it's uh, um, they feel they have more leeway there than they would have even in Estonia, which is a lot closer and a lot weaker, but has a, a NATO guarantee. Right. And I think that this is part of the tragedy of this story is that we in the West said, oh, well, you know, Ukraine is not a part of NATO. It's essentially Russia's sphere of influence. We, we don't have any sort of binding allegiance to, that re requires us to come to the defense of Ukraine. So we're just going to watch this unfold and, um, and not say anything and essentially give a message to Russia that they can do these things with impunity to uh, anyone who is not, you know, under our um, right. aegis. And, and um, that was a mistake. I so think it's, it's cyber appeasement. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, it's it's worse than that. We we um, just kind of pretended it wasn't happening at all. And uh, it took years for us to attribute the attacks, right? Well, I, that's to, well. It took years for the U.S. government to officially attribute the attacks and say this is the Russian military. This is not okay. And it never happened when it was just Ukraine as the victim. That only happened eight months after NotPetya. Uh, so right. um, the the story of the book to me is how we watched this unfold in Ukraine. We watched Russia doing these, you know, one unprecedented crossing one red line after another. Right, or at least a, a, one line that we had tried to say this is this is a norm you shouldn't turn off the lights on uh, civilian populations uh, without a military justification uh, um, and you shouldn't uh, screw up financial systems uh, uh, all things that that, that, that these uh, attacks did and I've always said that I think the norms that the US government, promulgates our shopping lists for at least the North Koreans. They say, oh, that's what scares them. Let's try that. Uh, and there's a little of that in the Russian attacks. They, they're having a lot of fun doing this. I mean, they do seem to be having fun. They seem to be trying to outdo themselves all the time. They seem to be doing everything they can think of. Like that second blackout attack, there was no real reason to have to develop a new way to cause a blackout, an even worse way. <laughs> so but it's, a, it's, but, like, it's like, hey, Dimitri, hold my beer. Watch this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, uh, in, in the kind of la some of the later chapters of the book, as I try really to, to get to the answer of who Sandworm is, I, you know, I, I both seek out the real attribution of who are these hackers, where are they based, what are their names, and, you know, as much right. as I can learn that. But also, like, what is their motivation? And I talk to a bunch of Russia analysts and people who, who have talked to GRU, you know, uh, people over the years. I, I didn't manage to talk to any GRU defectors myself. I read 
as many dude, you, books you, as you, I can. I, uh, dude, <clears throat> you, you, <laughs> I have to say that because you went, you went to their headquarters and hung around, right, taking pictures? I was not – I don't think I took any pictures because okay. that was exactly what I was – and I did not knock on the door and ask for an interview with you know Unit 74455. I, I knew that that probably wouldn't end well. And at the least <laughs> – at the very least, like I was not actually going to get an interview. More likely, they would be interrogating me in a, in a locked room somewhere. Um, but I – yeah, I felt this kind of obligation to see the story through to the degree that you know I had to go look at this building that I believed that they were likely in, which – I don't want to spoil it, but it's this building in Moscow. On yeah, the, it's, a, yeah. it's a nice uh, office tower, right? Yeah, it's very it's it's in a nice little uh, suburb. Yep. So let, let me let me take a, just a step back and run at this again. Uh, you're looking at not Petya turning out the lights in Ukraine, um, and you end up uh, pulling together a set of attacks that most people now would attribute uh, certainly to the Russians and uh, increasingly to the GRU. What are the other attacks that uh, these guys, that we would remember that these guys are probably responsible for? Well, the third one, aside from the blackouts, mm -hmm. call, call that one, and then NotPetya, the third act of the book, the big attack in that uh, act is the attack on the 2018 Winter Olympics, which is another disruptive attack Kind of, Which we don't hear so much about because the Koreans did a hell of a job in responding to it. That's part of why I think they – I mean this, the book tells the story that I don't think I've been told before of the 12-hour um, kind of desperate marathon that the Koreans had to undergo to reassemble their entire IT back end of the Olympic Games before uh, – actually starting at the – when in the middle of the opening ceremony, they have to – rebuild the Wi-Fi and the app and everything so that um, it will not be this humiliating confusion when everybody gets out of the of the stadium. 35,000 people. Tries to send the pictures home and stuff. Or yeah. tries to find their hotel or, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, but then they have to spend the next entire night, that, that entire night, trying to rebuild the, the, the network so that when the games begin the next day, things will be running when everybody wakes up and the actual Olympic Games start. So, but they succeeded at that. And, I, I, and, I don't, and that led people... To think, oh, it was a glitch. Also, there was problems uh, attributing this. Right. I mean, the, that's the, an understatement. Uh, I mean, yeah. this was the hardest attribution problem. It was. It almost seemed like this attack's main goal, in some ways, was to was to discredit attribution. Was to was to highlight the attribution problem to to hammer on that and to say, uh, actually. You know, you guys, there is no such thing as real attribution. Look at all these possibilities here and these. So I mean, they were the, stealing the, code from other They were taking other, fingerprints other from groups. other, other yep. groups, the Chinese mm -hmm. malware and North Korean malware. North, they, it, I mean, it was, it was strange because they made a really concerted effort in parts of this to make it look like North Korea. But they also just threw in some Chinese code, too, just right. to really confuse everyone. So this was a kind of, uh, I mean, one, one. Uh, malware analyst called it psychological warfare on reverse engineers. Mm -hmm. It was designed to make you doubt that you'll ever get to the bottom of these false flags. But ultimately, I talked to people who did get to the bottom of and it. And they I were think pretty persuasive. They pretty found very clever ways to associate these attacks with other infrastructure that was clearly a, uh, part of the Russian infrastructure. That's right. And um, I mean, it's it's a it's a big web of infrastructure that's much harder to fake than a little bit of right. snippet of code, and it is ultimately tied to not only Russia but the GRU and a specific unit of the GRU. 
So this is, you know, kind of ironically, this big web of this big uh, tangle of false flags underneath it are the fingerprints that start to solve the whole mystery of, of who Sandworm may be. Um, it, and ultimately, you know, I, I think it's it's very persuasive that Russia attacked the Olympic Games, among other things. I mean, right. Napetia is the true war crime here, yes. I think. But you know, not to mention that we never said anything about what they were doing to Ukraine when right. when Ukraine was the was the main victim. Um, it took us eight months to say anything about Napetia, the biggest cyber attack in history. We've never yet said anything about Olympic Destroyer. We have not. Those those hackers have not been indicted. And that's a, that's an ally. Uh, that, right. That's uh, I mean, that's a, a kind of pillar of the, I don't know, glo- it's this global events that heads of state attend. And, but I think and, what, what they clearly did, the, the, what the GRU clearly did in this case, is made it hard to attribute within 12 hours. That's right. But, you know, um, when I talked to Tom Bossert, who, yep. you know, worked on the attribution and the, I mean, the, the official attribution of NotPetya, and is proud of the fact that, that, that he led this charge to, 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 s- to actually attribute it. For and all to, five eyes together, to actually, it. to yep. attribute it. It took eight months. And I said, you know, isn't that like kind of a, I mean, isn't that kind of a weak signal if it takes eight months? And he said, well, it's, it's not like you're uh, slapping a dog here, like with a right. newspaper. <laughs> they, Russia can remember what they did eight months ago. Yeah. And they can remember the lesson eight months later. So it's still just as effective. That, that may be true. I, you know, ultimately, my beef with the response to these attacks is is not that we didn't respond to NotPetya, because I think we did. There were sanctions yeah. that came a month mm-hmm. later. I don't know how strong they really were. But it was that it took it, it took NotPetya for us to actually respond. It took years of watching Russia do things that are the quintessential acts of cyber war that we should have been calling red lines and getting away with it for years and just getting bigger and bigger in their ambitions. And then finally, you know, unleashing NotPetya for us to say anything about it. And then you know, six six days before the Five Eyes put out that statement about NotPetya, this Olympic destroyer attack happened, and we still have not talked about that publicly. So there's a kind of failure of of diplomacy happening here, and a failure of government. Right? I, I, government does. I, I, when I was in government, I, I went to a meeting and I, I urged some course of action, and this wise old deputy secretary from DOD said, "Well, in my experience." Government is often the very best way to do something the second time, uh, and uh, that the the problem here is these are all first time questions, and you have to struggle through. What are we going to do? All the hand wringing. I, I remember the you know the coal attack, the attack on the coal, which was a physical attack by Al Qaeda. We never did respond to it because it came at a bad time for government. The Clinton administration was ending, uh, Bush administration was coming in. It wasn't clear whose problem it was. It wasn't yeah, clear what to yeah, do. That sounds Same very familiar. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I got that impression that that's what happened with the with the 2016 blackout, for instance. It it happened in December of 2016, so that's kind of right in the yep. interregnum, right? And then um, with NotPetya, it was you know at first it looked like it was criminal ransomware. Yep. I I even believe that on the first day before I started talking to the Ukrainians about it, who are always of course willing to say it was, <laughs> it was Russia. Right. And so it was confusing. It took and, and then it took a long time to see the scale of it as well. You know these the companies. Uh, outside of Ukraine that were victimized by this all did their best to sweep it under the rug. Yeah, I, it took I, them, I, I remember when they were <clears throat> they were estimating 100 million, 200 million, which were big numbers, but it turns out to be a billion for most of them. It it was close to a billion for Merck. It was, you know, I, I would say like closer to half a billion okay. for most of them, but it adds up. But certainly it, not 100, uh, 100 million. But each of those, you know, we, you know, we see like 
New York Times front page stories about the shutdown of the Atlanta or Baltimore city right. government with ransomware, that's ten million or twenty million dollars right. of damage. We're talking about you know an order of magnitude bigger for each one of these firms and several orders of magnitude bigger in in total. It's a mind-boggling scale when you and I, a big part of the book is me trying to reconstruct. Um, I, maybe not a big part of the book. It's just a few chapters, but it's it was a big part of my reporting. It was really mm-hmm. hard because Maersk did oh, not want to talk about this. Oh, I mean, n- yeah. no companies outside of Ukraine wanted to tell the story of being hit with NotPetya. So it took you know all this back-channel anonymous sourcing and brave people willing to talk about these very you know terrible experiences they'd had. As you know, in Maersk, they watched their entire global network oh, be destroyed. Yeah. Uh, including their, you know, 17 of their terminals and ports around the world. And the physical kind of instantiation of that was just so dramatic. And and so I tell that story in a lot of detail, how, you know, what it looked like inside the Maersk's headquarters when every screen in a wave just goes black, 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 black. And then this, you know, within minutes, uh, they realized that ships are arriving at terminals and ports around the oh, world yeah, and nothing. they don't know what's on them. And the, the gates are paralyzed outside those ports and tens of thousands of trucks are lining up outside. It's, it's amazing somebody didn't uh, starve to death in line or uh, uh, lose uh, a freighter. It's we don't amazing. know the, the extent of it. I mean, um, I have heard that there, I don't think this is, I put it in the book because I couldn't confirm it, but I, I think that there are still plenty of lost containers as a result of this, uh, you know, just confusion bomb, essentially. Yeah, I, you talk about some somebody calling up uh, Maersk and saying, uh, yeah, I didn't get my shipment. And they said, well, how about a million dollars? Well, a million dollars too? Right. I mean, Maersk did its best to recover from this and cover the costs for their big clients anyway. A lot of little clients, I think, got screwed from what I can tell and partners and things. Um, but the cost for Maersk was huge. And they they say 300 million. I hear that it was probably more. Right. But you multiply that by Every other one of these companies, like Mondelez, which owns Nabisco and Cadbury and right. and and Rankin Benkisler that makes Durex condoms, and you know, it just uh, there's so many of these. Merck, which had to borrow some of its own uh, HPV vaccine from the CDC because it was it couldn't produce enough because of NotPetya, um, and lost 870 million dollars. When you multiply this out, and then there's this there is this other kind of immeasurable element of this, this which is that it hit hospitals too. Uh, right, which uh, again, uh, you know, as, as though it was on their shopping list, they said, "Oh, well, let's make sure that we uh, uh, mess with the Americans' notion that we shouldn't take down hospitals." So, uh, let me ask I, 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 that kind of takes me to something that I enjoyed most in the book, uh, or at least I hadn't thought about it. And you know, once you've done the attribution, once you put all of these adventurous uh, episodes together. Especially if you can attribute them to a particular organization, you kind of wonder what the hell is going on in this organization? What are its values? What's its history? Why does it behave this way? And you do a nice job of first tying a bunch of stuff that we hadn't been sure was really that we they all have they, they all have different bear names. There's Voodoo Bear and Fancy Bear and Grumpy Bear, <laughs> uh, and uh, those are great names. If what you're looking at is their tools, which is, of course, where they come from. They come from the forensics uh, uh, incident response teams that get to see the tactics and the tools and the protocols that people use to get in. They have a little bit of an idea of what the targets are, 
but they uh, they don't have an intelligence um, uh, capability to analyze other parts of what is going on here and other bits of evidence. Uh, a, and so they have found different tool groups and given them different bear names. But you make a persuasive argument that a lot of those tools are actually developed inside a bigger organization that is almost certainly the GRU. Well, right. The the kind of private sector malware security researcher community who are really the main sources and the, some of the main characters in the book, even. Yep. They're the kind of the detectives that we're following through this detective disaster story. Um, they, and in a few cases, stealing each other's uh, right, attributions. Right. There's I, a little I, drama. I, 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 what Rob Lee did with this poor Slovakian security uh, uh, company. I don't even want to step into that again. There, you know, there's a lot of beef there. There's a lot of beef. Um, uh, I, I, he, um, okay. So the, but the, yeah, the story they, may not actually be accurate that uh, they worked six months. They asked him to check <laughs> their work and he spent three days producing his well, own report. <laughs> no comment. Um, but to, what you were actually you – know, to your earlier point, they they get access to all this forensic stuff. Right. They get the malware. In some cases, they, they get the incident response logs. Yep. And that can be really detailed. Um, they can see the victimology. But then they kind of use that to assemble theories that I, for, for me are kind of um, only confirmed in some cases. You can only confirm that like Fancy Mare may line up with this unit of the GRU Sandor may lined up with this unit of the GRU when an intelligence agency, or better yet, a group of them like the Five Eyes, make some statement about that. Or even right. best of all was when Robert Mueller released an indictment of 12 GRU agents and said, look, these guys are in unit 26165. These guys are in unit 74455. That was kind of like an answer key for a lot of the of my sources who they were like, oh, yes, this is confirmed. I, I knew it. So if that's the case, I mean, it, it, so it, it, we, we all said, OK, so it's it's an intelligence arm of the Russian government that Fancy Bear is and so is uh, uh, Voodoo Bear. But you put it together, partly thanks to Robert Mueller, uh, as the GRU. And the GRU has gone through a kind of remarkable uh, – uh, fall and rise just in the last 10 years. And it seems to have created a culture that really is sort of, uh, hey, Dimitri, hold my beer, watch this. Uh, you and know. Not, not just in, in you know, cyber war, I should say. Like as I, as I really looked into the GRU and started talking to people who know them, who follow them, including one very brave uh, journalist who I, I speak to in, in Moscow, Roman Dobrokotov, who um, partners with Bellingcats, mm -hmm. a lot of their work, and All Bellingcat right. did amazing well, they, they stuff do, on this. They do great stuff. Um, I mean, the GRU are absolutely out of control. I mean, just name some crazy thing that Russia did, and it seems like it was probably the GRU. Like the downing of MH17, was, right. the GRU were involved. The attempted assassination of Sergei Skripal, that was... Right, you. where where they they used the most Bond villainish uh, uh, a tool and the most obviously attributable to Russia that you could possibly imagine. It was like they they, they just said, "Hey, over here." <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you know, then they get caught and they say, "Oh, we were just trying to see the Salzburg Cathedral." I mean, they 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 they're not like big strategic thinkers. They or maybe they don't care that they get maybe getting caught 
doesn't have consequences. I'm guessing you take that Putin is raised in this culture. They get caught and he says, yay, good on you. That was that was ballsy to do that. Absolutely. I think that that's part of it. But it's also just, yes, they don't care about getting caught. They also just don't seem to care about making mistakes, though. Like NotPetya was terribly damaging far beyond it, anything that it needed to be. I don't think that even the GRU or, you know, Putin, who they were trying to impress or whatever general, wanted it to, to come to back immediately that. into Russia and right. do that kind of damage to their own country. So what's the, what's, what do you think is – is there a theme to this pudding? Do they, do, they, do they have some idea? They must have some doctrine. They must have some idea what they think they're doing with all of this activity and with the insouciance about uh, uh, where the uh, rocket comes down, where the, uh, the, the, the chips fall. Well, I did my best to kind of to talk to smart people who who know the GRU well, to read every defector's book that I could, and to get like a sense of their culture and their what they're thinking. But then, otherwise, we have to kind of speculate based on what we've seen them doing. And it seems like it is at least three things: they are experimenting, as I said, they're they're, they're trying things out in Ukraine to build their capabilities. Um, they want to, yeah, it's, it's probably hard in some ways to mm -hmm. know how much this stuff works until you try it. They are signaling, I think, to the West. They're um, trying to impress the West, like, look what we can do if you do something to us. Mm -hmm. They're also trying to impress their own audience in, in Moscow, I think. Yep. Um, and, and that kind of ties into this third thing, which is that they, it's just a kind of, I think, like a something about their org chart, that this is how you get promoted within the GRU. It's not by being risk averse and talking to the lawyer and asking, right. is this okay if we do this? And it's uh, just just go and do do it. And uh, and and, no and even happens, even if it turns out not completely well, there's a sneaking admiration for you for having had the balls to do it. Yeah, and you know, I I, I don't I, I I fear that that sounds like a kind of Russophobia because it is a kind of stereotype about Russians that like. You know, they, there's a certain machismo or something. But I don't think believe that about Russia. I believe that about the GRU and maybe the Russian military and Russian intelligence, that there is this kind of, uh, I don't know, just machismo and uh, cowboy mentality that you just uh, just go out there and, like, do the most brazen thing you can think of and, you know, you, you earn your pay for the day. So I, there is a kind of nihilism to it. It's It's... We want we we want everybody to think that the life as they know it could end tomorrow. That uh, you know, if, if you don't take the red pill or the blue pill, I can never keep them straight. Uh, you won't really know what's going on. Uh, everybody's lying to you, and uh, uh, the world is built on illusion. Uh, uh, there is a kind of uh, element of we, the Russians, are going to show the West that uh, they've built. Uh, a, a, a a kind of pretend uh, a village uh, that will never withstand the real world. Right. I, I guess in my in my list of motivations, I don't know where this was supposed to fit in, but there's also that this. It's an influence operation in a way. We the obvious influence operations are the ones that that you know the Twitter trolls and the hacking and leaking to sow discontent and um, you know hone in on divisions and widen those cracks. But this kind of disruptive attack, you know, the blackouts, not Petya, all of it is itself, as some smart people, you know, tell me at the end of the book, they believe that that is an influence operation too, in the same way that terrorism is. It's a, it's like 
terrorism. It's it's designed to make the Ukrainians in particular um, lose confidence in their governments and feel like they are they don't have a sense of security uh, yeah. to, to make so, Ukraine look like so, a failed state. So this state. is the Russian version. It's kind of a global Russian intifada right. uh, it's, it's to a, do to the world what the Palestinians for a while did to Israel. You never know when bad stuff is going to happen. People are going to die. Innocents are going to be uh, uh, slaughtered. Uh, uh, no one can stop it. Um, it didn't work out well for the Palestinians. I don't think it works out well for the Russians. But in the short term, uh, they get to say, you cannot ignore us. Right. It's an insurgency. And um, I think that inter- insurgencies do work sometimes uh, and, yeah. and in Afghanistan. And, yeah, but we, uh, we ain't going home from the grid. <laughs> so I, it, 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 they, they work when, when you're attacking a stronger power that has the option of going home. That's, I'm not sure they work when, 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 when you're attacking somebody at home. It's, it, it's an interesting question. Though. I mean, I, I haven't thought about that idea of insurgencies being a, like, an attempt to make the enemy tr- just give up and go home. And how does that work here? Nonetheless, it seems like what Russia's position is that they are this insurgent in the global order. They don't want to rise through it like China does. They right. want to blow it up. And um, and and the things that they're doing do not um, – they don't have – tactical advantages. They, so, okay. They, so I, I, I agree. Uh, yeah. And last question, what should we do about it? You've got you've got an you've got an adversary that has this attitude that has tools that you know capabilities that are really quite uh, uh, troubling uh, and not yet fully uh, demonstrated, but uh, going to be worse. Uh, it, 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 certainly, our grid is not any better off than uh, uh, the Ukrainian grid, maybe worse. What should the U.S. What can the U.S. do? And and please, I, I you make a Great plea for resilience and the notion that uh, resilience is a kind of deterrence. Uh, and I've heard that. I've heard that from Tom Bossert. Uh, and it's true, but it's not true, right? It's, it's, a, it's damn cold comfort, really cold comfort when the power goes out. Uh, so beyond trying to be better at withstanding attacks, what can we do to prevent attacks? Right. Resilience, this, I mean, or even just um, trying to improve our defenses and then resilience is truly like the last ditch right. protection. It's like, can we can we recover after the apocalypse? That's not um, the first uh, prescription I would give. The first thing that we should be doing is calling out these attacks that cross red lines, setting red lines, even but when, can, but if we can't, if we can't even, do something about it, I don't think you know. I don't think that uh, Obama's red line in Syria over chemical weapons is viewed by anybody as his finest moment because he couldn't do anything about it when that was crossed. Well, we do do things about these attacks. You know, Obama did, for instance, call out North Korea for attacking Sony and the Iranians for attacking U.S. banks and indicted people in those cases. I think that Russians, in particular, you. Know, they would like to travel abroad. They don't yeah. like sanctions. Sanctions do actually hurt Russia. I don't know if it hurts them enough, but we have we barely tried. Like okay. we, yeah. we, um, the the first thing that you do is you make rules. You make you know what Brad Smith calls a Geneva Convention for the Internet. Or I think it, don't gag um, me with a spoon. Sorry. Another um, <laughs> another idea like that is Josh Corman's idea of a 
of a new fly zone around certain things. So, so who's, who's going to enforce these rules? We are? We're going to create no-fly zones over hospitals in the UK and then enforce it? How? Just by... So we've already tried sanctions. They're, they're, they have some value, but they can be overused. Uh, are we going to launch our own attack on Russian hospitals? I don't think so. No, and, and I don't want to suggest that we... They were doing some sort of mutually assured destruction or threatening a military response. Right. But we've barely tried the diplomatic responses. We've barely tried to set the red lines that we could enforce with these you know, peaceful tools like indictments and sanctions. Okay. Andy Greenberg, Sandworm, A New Era of Cyber War and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers. Good book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, especially, it just gets better and better toward the end. Thank so, you. Uh, uh, a lot of fun. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us. This has been episode 286 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, send us guest suggestions uh, and other feedback at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, if you follow at Stuart Baker on Twitter about half the time, I will uh, uh, send out uh, uh, previews of stories we're thinking about doing. Uh, please, if you like the show, leave us a review. Uh, uh, that's how other people find us. Uh, and uh, as my gag me with a spoon comment suggests, we are going to get Brad Smith on here and we're going to talk about his new book, uh, uh, which advocates for the Geneva Convention and which I think is a, uh, you know, uh, naive at least. Uh, uh, I think that's probably the nicest uh, thing to see. So expect some sparks to fly uh, in that interview. I have a lot of respect for him. I just disagree with him profoundly. Yeah. So please join us for that and other uh, interviews uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.